With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Don't Let It Go Unheard, and this is where we discuss news, politics, and culture from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy. Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism uniquely upholds the right to the pursuit of your own happiness. I'm your host, Amy Peikoff, and I see people over here in the chat room at Blog Talk Radio doing the traditional beginning of show refresh. Not exactly sure why that is required, but it is, and people are doing it, and it seems to be working for you. So welcome everyone who's joining me over here in the chat room live. Tim is saying that he has to wait until about a minute after the show starts in order to get sound. Uh, Ken is saying no sound, so you need to refresh again if you're not getting any sound, um, because you should be getting sound right now. I've got the microphone on and everything else. Can you hear me? I want someone to show me that they actually are hearing me right now before I'm going to continue. (laughs) Tim says, I feel refreshed. (laughs) I've got my second cup of coffee of the day sitting here in front of me. I think more as a security blanket than anything else. A lot of times when I start a show and I've got a fresh cup of buttered coffee, I get maybe about halfway through it as I'm going through the show. I don't stop talking the entire time. So I think I have the right job, talk show host. I can't stop talking, right? So go to the blog, don'tletitgo.com, and you can see my uh, semi-too-raunchy title for today. The title is Premature Evaluation, question mark. And I'm, I apologize a little because it's, it's a lot raunchier than the sort of, or the innuendo is raunchier than anything I've ever really done in the show title before, but I couldn't resist. I mean, I thought of it and I thought, okay, it's perfect. Why? Because everyone's going around talking about whether you can evaluate a Trump presidency in advance of him even taking office. There are all these attempts, both, you know, both on the right and the left out there trying to decide whether we can say anything about what the presidency means for our country, um, what it's going to be like in terms of concrete policy, what the 
selection or even the mode of selection of the cabinet members and transition team and all this stuff means for the presidency. And so we're going to take a look at some of the stuff that's been going around out there and try to ask, you know, what is it that you can say in advance? Are we evaluating what the Trump presidency means for America prematurely? Is it premature evaluation. I do urge you go to the blog, don't let it go.com. I've got a lot of good links, program notes for today, including a post that I made back in 2011, I believe an actual, you know, I used to do a lot more writing on the blog at don't let it go.com. And, and I've not done a, a, as much of that. I'd like to get back to some of that, but as I've been talking to people on, on Facebook earlier today, there's this great video going around uh, right now, you know, it's getting close to the end of the year and people are starting to talk about, you know, what was 2016 like? And for a lot of people, you know, even just think about a political level, 2016 has been just nuts. Uh, but there's this video going around. Let me see. I didn't share it with you guys, at the blog, because it's just it's a silly little thing. But I, I shared it publicly on Facebook. So if you go to my wall, you can find it there. And uh, the the little page on Facebook that shared it is called potato comedy. So I don't know how one of my friends happened to share something from a page called potato comedy, but there it is. The video is titled how 2016 has been for me. And it is this kid who's trying to push one of these huge trash bins in the face of a whole bunch of wind. And the kid is pushing it from the wrong direction so that the lid of the trash can keeps getting blown up and whacking him in the face and the trash can's getting blown over and he's struggling and struggling. <laughs> the poor kid, I'm sorry, I'm laughing because I'm watching it silently right now. Um, he's struggling with this trash can, right? He's never done this before. He's never tried to push this huge trash can in the wind and he's getting it slapped in his face timing and he's trying different strategies and it keeps happening. And it is so perfect to describe my year in terms of, you know, taking on unprecedented challenges and feeling like you're getting the trash can lid in the face. So I'm saying, okay, as soon as this trash can lid stops hitting me in the face, then yeah, I'll, I'll do some more writing. I really do want to get back to some of that. So we are going to talk about this old post that I wrote back in 2011. Seems to be applicable today in light of Trump's criticism of the Hamilton cast when the Hamilton cast was giving a little speech to Mike Pence the other day. Trump called for an apology on Twitter. And you know what sort of thing does that mean? Can we say anything about his presidency in connection with that. So that's just one of the things. Go to the blog, don't let it go.com, like I said, and you can see the program notes, all the stories, et cetera, that I plan to discuss. And you can call in, prepare to call in and talk about some of this stuff. It, uh, oh, no, I've got one person on the switchboard now. If you do call in, make sure to hit one if you want to talk. The number is 760 888 5817. Again, that's 760 888 5817. And I would love to hear from you. I want to hear your perspective on whether people are engaging in premature evaluation of the Trump presidency. Some people in the chat room are saying, Yeah, I do like the title. Selfishness says such an ambitious title. Um, I often have very ambitious titles, and then I wonder how well I actually carry through the plan for the show or the, you know, kind of, kind of the arc of the possibility for the show. 
Uh, see, Christopher uh, Bowden in the chat room says, as Tammy Bruce would say, punching you in the face every day. Uh, you got to watch that video of the kid. Uh, Arjun in the chat room is talking about something that people were talking about the other day when I was uh, posting. Actually, it was just yesterday. When I thought of this great title for the show, I went ahead and posted about it. And someone immediately says, are you going to do Facebook Live for your show? Um. I'm going to do it at some point, right? But I have to be better organized. You know, the trash can has to stop hitting me in the face, first of all. Uh, the, you know, the lid of the trash can, it's got to, it's got to stop. Uh, just, you know, physically, right? No, I, I'm not getting stuff hit in the face. Um, but what I do when I have this show is I just go around preparing and preparing and preparing and preparing. And the idea of actually making myself look like something in advance of this show, and then also just not being self-conscious about all the crazy gestures and everything that I make while I do the show, you know, spilling stuff all over myself and all that kind of stuff too, then, you know, I'll be ready to do that. Facebook Live, everyone wants, hey, your own is doing it, says Motive Power. I know it's peer pressure. John Stewart says stay off Facebook. I am on Facebook in part because, A, I have this group of friends and they give me just such wonderful stuff. You can see all the hat tips on my blog that people have given me stories this week. <laughs> They're saying he won't sing the theme song even if you ask. Hey, I'm not, I'm not singing the theme song either. I've been singing a lot of Let It Go lately. I'm trying. I'm trying to hit those notes. It's really tough to hit those notes. Waldo says it only really works if the callers can be heard on Facebook Live. Otherwise, you get only half the show. Yeah, that was one worry that I have is that I want people to hear the callers. Yeah, that's my excuse. It's because you can't hear the callers. It's not because I'm conscious in any way, shape, or form, self-conscious or insecure. No, not me. Not at all. Uh, but, yeah, do come over and enjoy the little video. I see some people are doing that on, on Facebook. You can probably watch that silently while you listen to me here on the show. So let's zoom over to the blog. And the first link that I have is to a story that's been discussed among a number of my friends, not a story so much, but an opinion piece written by the always excellent Ankar Gatte of the Ayn Rand Institute. I love Ankar. I actually should try to get him on as a guest. I just keep assuming that he'll be too busy to come on, but I really should call him and say, you know, please come on my show and let's talk about whatever it is. Maybe I want to just pick his brain selfishly on my theory of privacy and stuff like that while I have him on the show at the same time because his time is so valuable. But what he did recently here is write an opinion piece about the Trump presidency called One Small Step for Dictatorship, of course, saying that the Trump presidency means one small step for dictatorship. And this really is, you know, in my opinion, right, all the other stuff that you could talk about, his selection of transition team, his selection of cabinet, um, some of the stuff that, that he said or promised in the campaign, a lot of these other things, you can't really tell what concretely is going to be done under a Trump presidency until we see it put in motion. So I'm, I'm sympathetic to the people who say, look, you're evaluating Trump prematurely at least on the level of concrete policy, even when you're looking at these cabinet appointments and everything else, because we just don't know 
how all the teamwork's going to work. Like when you think about a basketball team, for example, you can have five superstars together and there's just absolutely no teamwork and you don't know what in the world's going to get done. You don't know even what sort of basketball team it's going to be, whether it's going to be heavily offense in terms of its strength, heavily defense, or it's going to be well balanced. You just, you know, a lot of passing versus a lot of dribbling down the court. No, right? And so you can speculate. You can say, okay, well, there's this guy, Bannon, and he has been the head of Breitbart, who has been pushing a whole lot of pretty offensive alt-right stuff out there. And, you know, we could talk about what do you think of alt-right and in your face and stuff. What does it mean that a guy who talks about dykes from some school, which is language I would never use, that he's being appointed as a chief advisor for Trump. That could be scary, right? But do you know exactly what sort of leash he's got? Do you know how it's going to play out with everybody else? Do we know how the senators are going to put pressure on Trump? We just don't know how all these pieces are going to play. Much less what we do know is that Trump doesn't seem to have any particular consistent ideology. As, as I've said in the past, He's a pragmatist with, I would say, authoritarian-type leanings. And so you just don't know what you're going to get. And we may indeed, by having Trump you know, elected, I didn't vote for him, but those who voted for him, may have bought us a bit of time to continue our drive to change the culture or just time to live our lives and enjoy our lives or however you envision it maybe there's some time that's been bought for us here because Trump is going to be in office. It's too soon to tell. And I think that Ankar would agree with me on that in terms of the concrete policies and in terms of the fact that we're judging prematurely what he's going to do in office exactly. But what we aren't necessarily judging prematurely is what, you know, sort of alarming sentiment seem to help get Trump elected. And that's the thing that we're going to talk about in Ankar's column here is what is it that is behind the election of Trump? Ankar writes that on November 8th, 2016, United States took its first step toward dictatorship. And he says, if that statement strikes you as blatantly false or as at best hyperbolic and unconstructive, I urge you to read on. And he says, He's not saying that Trump possesses the full mentality of a dictator. And he talks about the fact that family and friends think he's a perfectly sweet guy behind the scenes, et cetera. And Ankar has his doubts about whether he really can be that sweet, given what we've seen on his Twitter feed and the sexual assault stuff and everything else. He says, but nonetheless, it's not about that. It's not about Trump's actual character, he says, nor... Is it about the fact that Trump is going to be able to wield the dictatorial powers? And many of us know that under the Barack Obama administration, executive power has increased quite a bit. And many people, including people on the left, have warned about this. But nonetheless, that's not even his point. And I think, you know, Ankar believes, and I believe, that we are still you know, a system of checks and balances, there's going to be pressure put on Trump, counter pressure from Congress that's going to prevent, you know, a, an un, you know, unfettered exercise of dictatorial power by Trump. Uh, and Ankar even admits 
that Trump might enact some measures that, and, and this is quoting Ankar, others and I would regard as positive, including improvements to the tax code and replacement of Obamacare with something less harmful. But he says it's going to be in the wrong way for the wrong reasons, et cetera. So he says it's not even about that. Um, and, you know, and he, he does talk about the fact that Trump is going to probably appoint Supreme Court justices who will undermine reproductive rights and, he, and the way that Ankar puts it by imposing Christian religious dogmas on the country. Uh, side note, of course, reproductive rights are not my only concern along that axis. There is, you know, some disagreement in objectivism about whether we believe that gay marriage is a good thing. I happen to support gay marriage, but maybe I don't know if Ankar does, or he's just not taking a position. I don't know his view, but I would add that myself, that that's a concern of mine from Trump's Supreme Court appointments. Um, And then he says, you know, the King's court is often more tyrannical than the King. So there is some worry about the appointments or the floated appointments that are out there and whether they're seasoned authoritarians, as Ankar says. Rudy Giuliani, if you remember, the whole thing was um, uh, his track record as prosecutor. And I'm trying to remember Michael, Michael something was, oh gosh, I, you know, I'm sorry, I'm having a little bit of aphasia about it. But there was someone that Rudy Giuliani went after as a prosecutor, a businessman, and... I will remember it at some point and tell you guys sometime during the course of the show, his name, Michael something. And it was not just, it was, it was horribly unjust. And uh, in terms of Jeff Sessions, Jeff Sessions also has some things that he would like to do that I would disagree with, whether he's an authoritarian, I'd have to go ahead and take a look at, but Jeff Sessions on gay marriage and on, the Confederate flag, at least, probably I disagree with him, among other things. He says, but he says, as destructive to freedom, he thinks a Trump administration is likely to be. He says, that's also not his point. So he says, so what's his point, right? What is it that we can say now about what a Trump presidency means for America that is worrisome? He says that Trump, this is Ankar, he says, Trump publicly projected the mentality, methods, and campaign of a would-be dictator, however much it may have been an act and however difficult it may be to enact specific decrees. And then Ankar adds, the disturbing thing is that he won the presidency because of this. So Ankar's main point is that the reason the Trump presidency is a small step toward dictatorship is because Trump publicly projected the mentality, methods, and campaign of a would-be dictator, and he won the presidency because of this. That's Ankar's argument. And he goes on to observe a number of things about Trump that I've talked about here on the show when I've analyzed Trump's speeches, etc. And what is it? It is the main things. Now, Ankar has a little thing about how you know, some people were voting for Trump for different reasons. Why? Because Hillary was horribly corrupt and you thought you'd be much worse off under Hillary. You'd think that you would be able to roll back some of the controls on the economy under Trump. You'd think that Trump would do better at protecting us from jihadists, right? These are all real worries and those are worries that may have motivated some people to vote for Trump. But 
he says, regardless of those things, he says the grim facts are that the campaign was designed to appeal to base sentiments and it succeeded in major part because of this. And just to give you a little preview, where I would question Ankar, and I'd wonder where you stand on this issue, I do wonder whether the Trump candidacy succeeded in major part because of what I'm about to talk about from Ankar. I agree that what Ankar is pointing to was a real phenomenon, is a real phenomenon, is a major worry in our, about our culture and what all of this means. And I'm going to give you even more evidence. But did Trump succeed in major part because of this? Was it major part or was it people voting for different reasons for Trump or reluctantly because of Trump? Can we point to the fact that, as I pointed out last week, thanks to uh, Ben Shapiro, that Trump won with fewer votes than Romney lost, right? They're very low voter participation. Does that also temper what we can take from this real phenomenon in Trump's candidacy. So let me go to what it is that is so disturbing. He says, consider some of the campaign's mantras, slogans, and strategies, which together echoed the methods and voice of dictators through the ages. He says, first of all, Trump tells you how everything is so disastrous. Remember, everything is a disaster. No prospect of sunlight to dispel the darkness. And then he says next and crucially, I'm skipping, right? Uh, I, I, I urge you to read the whole piece and, and tell me what you think of it for yourself. Uh, he, uh, he says next and crucially to the America engulfed in darkness, Trump offered scapegoats who were responsible for the misery and, you know, all Muslims versus just the jihadists, immigrants in general. This is, reminiscent of Nazis demonizing Jews, socialists, socialists demonizing owners of private property, etc. How do we get rid of the sundry list of scapegoats? Through political power. Remember that Trump said in one of his speeches, I alone can fix it. Many, many times he said, believe me, trust me, right? Um, and you know, Ankar's got this great quote from Peter Thiel, Trump supporter Peter Thiel. He said he stated it perfectly as he reiterated the formulations of some of the earlier commentators. Those, quote, who vote for Trump take Trump seriously, but not literally, end quote. So whenever Trump has stated particular policy proposals, and however vaguely or specifically or whatever, People don't even take him literally. Instead, they are taking him on faith. They are believing him. They are trusting him. They are believing that he alone can fix it. And so then the question becomes, and, and I think this is a real phenomenon, right, that many people voted for Trump, maybe sometimes out of desperation. They didn't fully believe, but they're doing this at least in part because they are going to put their faith in this guy. This guy has no consistent ideology. You can't take him literally. That was shown even through the course of his campaign as things were changing all the time. If you were doing it, it's like he's going to fix it somehow. And uh, he says, this is Ankar. He says, Trump and his campaign projected himself as unconstrained by any previous statements or commitments he had made, unconstrained by any facts, unconstrained by the truth. 
He says, this was just not just the routine flip-flopping of today's politicians. He says, a presidential candidate who regularly indulges in conspiracy theories like the birther smear of President Obama is in a different and new league. Okay, so this is the epistemology piece, the theory of knowledge piece. On what theory of knowledge is Trump explicitly operating? What is his mental process like? And he says, this is a candidate who, after the disturbing recording of his disgusting remarks to Billy Bush surfaced, can go on television before millions of Americans and declare that, quote, no one respects women more than me, no one, end quote. He says, this is a special pride in being above the facts, which limit other mortals, but not him. That's extremely dangerous, right? Uh, And he says, well, most political campaigns are vacuous. Think of Obama's slogans of hope and change and et cetera. Um, And he says, instead, there's even more vacuousness under Trump. Um, Trump consistently and proudly defied the need, writes Ankar, to be pinned down by anything, including the platforms and positions of the Republican Party. Uh, Jenkins, one commentator, is quoted by Ankar here as saying, Trump's platform comes down to trust me, a remarkable mandate if you can pull it off. And I've pointed out several times Trump's mantra of believe me, believe me. And he says, this is not a mandate. He says, this is a demand for a blank check on political power. This is Ankar again. A check which heretofore Americans had been willing, unwilling to sign, not this time. And then what happens is Ankar goes on to talk about some opinion polls, you know, what people were voting for. There's a number of people who said, what we need is a leader who is willing to say or do anything to solve America's problems. The Trump voters, 54% of those said that. Um, There was another statement that they were asked whether they agree or disagree, and it is, quote, America needs a powerful political leader that will save us from the problems we face. Those who are leaning towards Trump, 83% of those said that they agreed with that statement. Now, he says that this is alarming, and then he also gives you a couple of anecdotes. One, when he dared to challenge the anti-immigration policies of Trump at a Freedom Summit event in Chicago. They were actually scared for his safety because of the fact that he was saying, you know, I'm going to go ahead and challenge that. Uh, Then the second incident is Trump. You know, remember when Trump was joking, he says he's got the most loyal people. He could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot someone and he wouldn't lose any voters. This is also a disturbing but true observation. So I ask you this question. How much of, you know, Trump's victory is due to this, right? How much of Trump's victory is due to this? And second, um, you know, what does that say? Does that mean you're going to be able to say something major about the Trump presidency, the Trump administration, and what it means for our country. I've got a couple callers. I'm going to go ahead and grab one. I think the first is Debbie. Am I right? Is this Debbie? Hi, Amy. Debbie. Hi. How how are you doing, Debbie? I'm pretty good. How are you? 
I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. All right. So, um, yeah, I think you've partially answered my question already, which was why would Obama not be regarded as a big step or at least a step towards dictatorship? Um, and it sounds like what he's kind of getting at is that the way that that Trump campaigned and the types of uh, the type of strongman image that he relied on and the just total total disdain for fact. Like you said, no one respects women more than me. I mean, that's just ridiculous. I I, I couldn't help but laugh at it when he said that. I mean, it's it's disturbing, but it's just like, are you serious? It's just right. so blatantly false. But you, you know, he's definitely got a point there with it being um with it being disturbing that someone would just totally defy reality like that. Um, so. Yeah, uh, there is definitely a lot of premature evaluation, though, on the left. I don't know if you heard it or not, but there was a guest on um, Adam Carolla's show the day after the election, and it was a, a black comedian, and, and he was it was actually really sad. He was saying things like, "My ki- I'm afraid for my kid's safety. My kids right. were comparing skin colors to see which tone, which one had a lighter tone, because then that's gonna, whoever that is is going to be safer than the other, and um, I have a target on me, Obama's trying to hunt down my people, or not Obama, Trump's trying to hunt down my people, I mean, it's really, I, I, I talked to someone on Thursday night at a, at a networking event who said that she thinks that there's going to be a Muslim registry and maybe even something comparable to the Japanese internment camps, but for Muslims. And, uh, yeah, so I, I mean, for, I from what I understand, there is there's some there's there's some possibility of additional, you know, sort of tracking of immigrants and maybe all immigrants, but you know, perhaps Muslim immigrants. That's a far mm-hmm. cry from Japanese internment camps. And then you know, we could talk yeah. about the advisability of something like that. But here, here's you know, Debbie, I was reading. The other day, I have a Facebook friend who had shared a link from a legal website, and there's a very well-respected attorney, I can't remember his name, Asian-American, well-respected attorney, who went to a gas station recently, and some guy who was wearing a hockey jersey came up and said something like, how does a guy like you get to drive a car like that, and basically implying Asian-Americans should not succeed here in the United States you should get out of here. And and there is there is no doubt. I mean, there are incidents like this that I'm hearing reported from, you know, reliable people, right, that there are some racists in America who have been emboldened by the fact that Trump won. And it is scary. It is wow. bringing out, as Ankar says, some of these base sentiments. The question is, how big of a phenomenon is it really? It's there. It exists. It's it's substantial, but is it to the extent that it's unprecedented? If you know, in, in terms of this type of mentality, is it, you know, uh, one small step in the sense that we haven't taken these steps before? That remains to be seen, right? Yeah. That wow. You know, I guess I'm I'm in somewhat of a bubble here in Silicon Valley, and maybe I just don't appreciate fully what the support. For Trump looks like out there 
um, in in other areas. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I'm definitely open to the idea. I certainly hope not. I had, I had actually been, and, and I'm, I'm not super proud of this, but I had been a tiny, tiny bit glad that, well, mostly that Hillary lost. Right. Uh, on tonight, you know, I mean, I, I kind of hated her more and saw her as more of a threat, at least on an emotional level, and so I guess I need to look at what my incorrect premise might be that I would think that Trump winning is better. I think it's probably partly just that I haven't really been exposed to the um, what the mentality of the supporters and what the nature of the support really looks like. That's probably probably the error that I've made. Um, so, well, I, I hope that it won't be like some people think it's going to be. But like you said, like you frequently like to say, that's just an emotion and it doesn't really have any bearing on reality. It's just a little bit better than despair. And uh, I yeah, I'm, I'm still I'm still in my uh, my philosophical examination of of hope. I've I've really got you know with the uh, with the trash can hitting my face so many times this year, I've got a little bit of challenge to the the, the hope idea. But you know we're we're gonna we're gonna keep plowing on and and then really take more of an examination of it. It, it was fun to talk with well, Haley Mary a bit about it, but I didn't get that much farther in my thinking when I did. From a at least from a neurological standpoint, there are things that stress does to your brain, like actually killing cells in the hippocampus, for instance, mm-hmm. um, and so there are physical manifestations that go along with stress and depression and negative emotions, so just for whatever that's worth, um, it's but but you know ultimately we want to be focused on reality and and whatever that whatever that means whatever reality actually is so I mean I think that the it's a complex issue it is but just I don't know I figured just I throw that out for your consideration that there are yeah actual I mean as neurological ones. yeah I mean as as always what's the answer it's to focus on Rand's quotation. Never think of pain or danger or enemies a moment longer than is necessary to fight them, right? If yep. if you're yep. if you're just going to be ruminating on it and you're not in a position that you're doing anything constructive, including psychological examination that could be constructive, right? That that's profitable too. But if you're not doing it in a constructive way, then you need to stop thinking about it and go focus on something that is you know, going to further your values, right? Right, yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. I agree. Okay, so thank you, Debbie, for calling in. Um, So you you tend to agree with Ankar here that this is an ominous sign, uh, but maybe not quite to the extent that he seems to imply. Is that where I'm understanding you? Well, I don't think I have enough information, but what he's saying makes sense. What what, What I've heard of what he's saying makes sense to me. I guess uh, I simply just don't have a whole lot of data. I'm here in the Silicon Valley and in the Bay Area, and everybody's just, like, been wailing and lamenting ever since the election, and nobody's, like, running around making comments that suggest racism or anything like that. You know, no, there's no, there's no like, local branch of the KKK or something that's right. been celebrating <laughs> so that, that, that's really that's reserved apparently to here in Southern California. Southern California, we have that stuff. Yeah. You guys, 
you guys are a little I mean by the way did you see Debbie there's the SNL piece from this last Saturday called the bubble no I didn't see that okay you got to watch it I posted the YouTube video on the blog so when you get a chance when you're not in the car check out the bubble and I imagine that in Silicon Valley you're almost in the bubble right now (laughs) Probably so, yeah. So I think I need more data to really make a solid decision about where I stand relative to Ankar, but he's a he's a smart guy, so uh, No, I, I think I think he, he's he's definitely identifying a phenomenon that is there and that is worrisome. And then my two questions are first of all, how substantial is that phenomenon really? What you know, what yeah. role did it really play in Trump's success, given the low voter turnout, given the high percentage of reluctant voters for Trump? Right? Um, are the mm-hmm. surveys that are, are the surveys that Ankar cited of as much significance as he thinks they are? Those, those, that's one. You know, and these these are things about what reasonable people can disagree about. Um, well, one of so, the survey questions. One of the survey questions that you read, which was something like, America needs a strong leader that can fix the problem, there are right. so many ways I could interpret that. Like, I can imagine somebody taking it to mean, we need somebody who's going to stand up for the Democrats and fight them instead of being a limperist like somebody right. in the previous term. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Like, well, so, and, and then he, so here's wrong. here's the thing, too, though. Here's the thing, too, right? You know, um, Ankar is focusing only on the Trump supporters. But then I also at the blog, again, don'tletitgo.com, I keep plugging my blog, I, I've got a link to a blog post by a guy named Sean Edwards, and he talks about that even on the left, people have had this disturb this disturbing characteristic of identifying themselves with their political candidates too much. So Democrats, Democrats feel so personally let down by the fact that Trump won because they're, they themselves were placing so much hope in Hillary Clinton. And how disturbing is that, right? It is a complementary phenomenon on the left, but it, it is the same phenomenon. And the fact that it exists so predominantly in the left is also disturbing. So it's not just the nationalist right. We also have the socialist left that seem to engage in this same sort of thinking of, you know, here's this woman who was totally discredited through WikiLeaks and shown to be corrupt, and yet they put so much faith in her that when she lost, they're all crying and saying it's the end of the world. Well, Amy, uh, just to give you an idea of how distorted thinking can be, uh, the person I spoke with who was concerned about a Muslim registry, I told her, yeah, I hate Trump, too, but, I mean, Hillary was terrible, too. She's a criminal, and, you know, I mean, and she said, she said, no, that's 100% lies. Hillary didn't do any of that, and the proof of that is that she was never convinced of anything. That's 100% lies, and it was invented because uh, people hate her because she's a woman. And I'm not exaggerating. I'm not exaggerating. That's what she said verbatim. And she was very passionate about it, and, and there was no arguing with her about it. Like, now see, this is this is this is why I love Haley Mary. My interview from last week, because you know, here she is. She's this kind of liberalish, uh, very talented musician, and she didn't like Hillary either. She understood 
why Hillary wasn't a good candidate. But nonetheless, there were a number of people. It's like vote, vote vagina, you know, and 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 that's it. And somehow have faith in the fact that she's a woman, and therefore it's going to be right for the country. Yikes. Right, and well, what these people think, and another thing this person said is, there's the the right wing media. The the media has an extreme right wing bias, and the media did nothing but attack Hillary Clinton during the campaign. I mean, it's just mind boggling. Like there's, it's so there's such distorted thinking about politics. Right. I, I, I just, uh, uh, anyway. Um, <laughs> There's definitely, there's definitely dysfunction on, on all sides of uh, left and right. Right. Um, and, and, and again, you know, the, the biggest concern is this willingness of a substantial number of Americans and or just an abandonment by a substantial number of Americans of the American sense of life, the American sense of life that could never imagine living under a dictator you know, Rand thought, said of, of Americans that it was defiance, not obedience, that that is Americans' distinctive reaction to overbearing authority, defiance. And we're just not seeing that. You know, we're seeing people willingly submit themselves to authority, whether it be for Trump or, like I said, on the left for Hillary, to the extent where they, they were putting so much stock and Hillary Clinton being elected president as if that meant everything that they're crying and, and say, you know saying it's a horrible thing in a way you know it was it was nice to watch them right but it's disturbing yeah. for for what it means right it was it was fun to watch but it was also disturbing it, in terms of what it meant is it submission or is it aggression because what it looks like to me is people are glad to see a strong man on their side because they want to see their opponents smashed. Not necessarily that they believe they themselves are submitting or subjugating themselves. What do you think about that? Uh, you know, I think that obviously there are both elements in any submission to an authority like that, right? That, that it is, uh, you know, a cheering, a you know, sanction of that authority using force against your so-called enemies. And at the same time, you know, in order to get that, you're willing to submit yourself to this authority. Of course, you believe that this authority is always yeah. going to believe on, you know, it's always going to be on your side and never turn against you. But right, right. nonetheless, it, there's this willingness to submit that's quite disturbing. So this is the phenomenon that Ankar is pointing out. And then the big question, I think, empirically is, how significant of a phenomenon is it and what does that mean for the ability to turn the culture in the right direction because I could point to the significance of Ayn Rand you know being recognized in the culture her ideas being discussed more in leading news outlets like Wall Street Journal and New York Times and everything else and we could say well there's this substantial phenomenon going on and so we're going to be very optimistic even though that's not politics, and as a matter of fact, it's more important that it's not politics, that we're seeing this acceptance of, of Rand's ideas in the culture. And is that not, mm-hmm. a, is that not a potent counterbalance to the things that Ankar is citing there? So, you know, again, it, there's empirical questions, but I do think that Ankar is pointing out something real. And, you know, it, some of it remains to be seen what the long-term effects of this 
administration are, are going to be. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I, I agree 100% with that. Okay. Yeah. Well, know, thanks, I'm, Debbie, I'm for calling. I think I think I'm about about to have a discussion with Ed, and Ed's probably going to disagree with me here or there. So that's going to be some fun. Um, I'll I'll talk All to right. you soon. Okay. Thanks very much. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Think I've got Ed next. Let me see if that's right. Is this Ed? Hey, Amy. How are yeah. you? So I'm I think I think fine. I've gotten out. I've I've already you know through my own presentation and through talking with Debbie, I think I've gotten out my basic position on on Carr's thesis. My guess is that you probably disagree somewhat with Ankar's thesis? Am I guessing right or am I guessing wrong? You saw my comment on Facebook. Um, I, did, I did not well, see your comment on Facebook. I'm sorry, I didn't. Oh, okay. Well, let's, uh, let's preface this discussion by saying that I wish, and I think you know I wish, that we were sitting here discussing President-elect Cruz or President-elect Paul or President-elect Perry or, you know, maybe some of the others. Um, right. And we, I, I, I wish we were doing that. I think you wish we were doing that. And so, um, kumbaya. Uh, so let's 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 all agree with that. <laughs> okay. On 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 Ankar's article, um, it is the worst example of context dropping I have ever seen written by anyone who claims to okay, be Okay, 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 okay. We don't have to put the huge, huge like that. But tell me why. Tell me why. Well, I mean, I, it, it, honestly, it really deserves a line-by-line refutation, which we don't have time. But why don't you throw out some things that he said and, uh, uh, that, and we can, uh, we can, we well, can discuss. Well, I did. So I, I well, kind of threw out, you know, he, okay, said, just, he, he said it's not the concrete the policies. And, and, again, let me, let me, you know, I'll reiterate how, what I understand the basic thesis to be. He said that if you look at the appeals that Trump made, you know, the way that he presented himself and the reasons that a substantial number of people were voicing support for him, that they match up and they show that there is this authoritarian element in his campaign that is the reason he got elected. It's, 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 It's a substantial number of Americans embracing authoritarianism as the reason that Trump got elected, regardless of whether he himself is going to be a dictator, whether the particular policies that he's going to enact are going to be bad, whether he is really going to have a tyrannical cabinet, you know, et cetera. Okay? Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously I think Trump is going to do a bunch of bad things, right? So we all agree with that. I think we all agreed with that going in. Might do sure. some good things, be it. That do some bad things. But let's take let's take things. I I think the a charge of authoritarianism is false. Now let's let's take it one uh, one by one. For instance, the the polls, uh, the exit polls, uh, talking to uh, the people who say they want a strong leader. Let, let's take that at first. Um, okay. Let's evaluate let's evaluate previous presidents. You think you think George Washington was thought of by people at the time as as strong or weak? You think Abraham Lincoln was thought of as a strong president or a weak president? Ronald Reagan, do you think he was thought of by the people as strong? Right, or weak? right. But what you've got so, here, so, what you've got here, right, so, is you've got you've got someone who it's like strength, but it's the bull in the china shop strength. And people in the past were not voting for bull in the china shop strength. This, this well, guy see, doesn't see, have this, principles. This was why. This is why I think it's, it's, it's grotesque context dropping. It's as if Ankar has started to analyze American politics 
in like 2008. It's like, that's when he came in. It's like, uh, and now I'm going to analyze to that end, like he knows nothing about what happened in the Bush administration or the Clinton administration or the first Bush administration, or the Reagan administration, or the Carter administration, or anything about American history. He's dropped the entire context of it all. Uh, Trump is not a good guy. He, he, he's better than Clinton, in my view. We could disagree with that, but he's not a good guy. But he is not an authoritarian. I think what, what the people, I think Debbie got it perfectly right. The Republicans do nothing but virtue signal and surrender to the left. People want someone with a little backbone that isn't going to surrender to the left. That's what they consider strength. And in this context, strength is in contradistinction to weakness. They want somebody who is strong, who will stand up for something. Now, again, we can argue about whether Trump actually believes anything or not, but that is not an argument for authoritarianism. That is, in fact, an argument that some segment of the American people want a president who is going to stand up for them rather than, you know, surrendering their interests to, you know, foreign governments or foreign companies or, you know, foreigners in the United States or the big banks or whatever. I mean, each of these has its elements of problems. But it, it's no more different than we wanted President Reagan. We elected President Reagan because we wanted a strong president, not a weakling like Carter. I mean, if you went and did a, a, a poll after – President Reagan was elected, and you said, um, you know, what made you like President right, Reagan? Right, right, okay. But, you, the, but the point is again, right? What, no, but the point is again is that Trump puts out there, believe me, trust me, I alone can fix it. This is not the sort of stuff that a Reagan ever said. Yes, he was strong, but he was strong and relatively principled, if you can say something like relatively about a term principled, uh, you know, he operated on principle more of the time. Is that a, a fair thing to say? Again, you know, I, some Ankar well, was correct. I mean, Reagan, Reagan but, but, you get, but you get the idea, right? It, it is disturbing when people are willing to elect somebody who is, quote, strong, even when that person is saying, I'm not accountable to anything just believe me, trust me, I alone can fix it. Everything is horrible, well, okay. and here let's, are the scapegoats. Let's talk, about, let's talk about the I alone can fix it. I remember him saying that. He was on a yes. stage with a bunch of Republicans, all of whom were politicians, all of whom who set campaign contributions from various pressure groups. When he was taught, I mean, I thought, not drop the context. Again, Ankar, drop the context. The context was, I alone, of these 10, 15 people, I alone have seen the system and can fix it. Not I alone, like. Okay, uh, but you know, uh, you know, I've I've analyzed a number of speeches from him, and he keeps saying, "Believe me." And when he talks about yeah, okay. reasons so that you reasons you should vote for him, he talks about the mass turnout of people at his rallies. He talks about X percentage of this group endorses yeah. him, sure. you know, or Let's this group endorses. It, it's all Trump. about appeals to authority. Trump has a terrible speaking style. Let's all agree to that. He speaks in a stream of consciousness with a lot of use of hyperbole, right? I mean, it's all hyperbole. Everything he says is over the top, you know, all of a sudden. And appeals to authority. And appeals to authority. 
Well, I don't think he appeals to society. I mean, he says, yeah, the poll, when, when the polls say he was doing well, he said, oh, look, the polls are showing well. I mean, he's got this narcissistic personality disorder, right, where he, he wants to be seen as good and great and everything's the best. I mean, we certainly agree with that. But that is not authoritarianism. You have to keep the okay, context. Okay, but uh, authoritarianism is willingness to put your faith in a person regardless of any particular content. So, for example, the logical fallacy appeal to authority says that you are going to adopt a particular position or accept a particular position simply because some other person in authority said it. And Trump is asking you to trust him, to believe him, to fix it without giving you any good concrete evidence that he knows how to fix it in the right way. At all. See, I disagree with that. I disagree with that too. Let's go. Let's let's remember that his he, he speaking speaks, he style speaks in rally. He speaks gibberish half the time when he's telling you. That's right, and that's right. His speaking style in front of a crowd is bizarre, and I'm not saying it's not bizarre, but he does have reasoned plans, some of which I disagree with, some of which I agree with, and they're all there on the website. They've been there for over a year on all these different areas. So yes, giving this stream of consciousness speech is a kind of weird, idiosyncratic way of doing things. I know oh, right, that he but didn't again, do that again, much in the you know, How month. about the fact but that, that he, 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 refuses, he refuses to be held accountable to having any particular policy position they change? And as Peter Thiel is saying, you know, when when people supported him, they they take him seriously, but not literally. So the idea of yeah, let's supporting that. that's a great that's a great line, and let's examine that. So let's examine that in the context of his signature thing, the wall, or a big beautiful wall, and it's going to the Trump wall, right? All this hyperbole that he goes about doing it. They they made no great fun is, of that wall by the way on uh, Saturday Night Live. That was awesome. I'm was, sure what, like two two thousand miles or something and Trump is having a heart attack because right. he has no idea how it's gonna happen. It's awesome. No thinking person thinks there's going to be you know just An actual a wall, wall and that's yeah. what's gonna be. Yeah. Everybody understands that that is the wall is a metonym for walls, fences, cameras, dogs, you know, uh, UAVs, more border patrol agents, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, IR sensors to, for people overnight, you know, dual layers of fencing. The wall is a metonym for all of that. And that's what it means to take Trump seriously. He's going to do something about border security. He's serious about border security. Not literally. He's going to build a wall. That's what it means, and that's exactly right. That's exactly Now, I don't know whether he's going to build a wall or not. Who the hell knows what he's going to do? Again, I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not a particular Trump fan on this. He and might then Obamacare. What about Obamacare? You know? Any, any well, other thing he, that he's he has, talked about? Two weeks ago, I was on this program, and you read from his plan, and that's what he says he's going to do. And I have right. no information that he's going to do anything different than that. You, you read it. It's on the web. You read what he's right. going to do. And, like, do you have any information he's going to do different than that? I don't. He's never said he's going to do different right, than that. Right, right. But, you know, for example, when he was being attacked 
about his not paying taxes, right? Right. Yeah. Um, that was still, again, he can't speak like a human he, He's not able to defend himself. You know, Rob Abiera yeah. in the chat room over here asks a good question. What what was behind Reagan's strength? What made Reagan strong? And how would you compare that to Trump? So describe the strength of Reagan versus the strength of Trump. Reagan had certain core principles. Communism bad, taxes bad, regulation bad, America good. And everything sort of he did, did was based on those core principles. Trump doesn't have those core principles. I mean, I, I really right. do think we're, I, I really do, he does have one. He does have the America good part. And, and I think that, you know, the culture is Yeah, but he so doesn't know decayed. what America stands for. He doesn't know what America stands for. Reagan at least was close to understanding the principle of individual rights. And Trump is not anywhere near understanding that principle. And so here no, we have. not an intellectual. At all, he's not. Reagan was an intellectual. He was derided as an idiot, a fool, and a bubble. You but he's anti-intellectual again. I mean, he's he's anti-truth, right, Trump? Well, I'm not. I, I'm not so sure. I would call him anti-truth. He certainly he loves, engages he loves in a women, lot of hyperbole. He loves women more than anyone after that tape is released. Uh, again, oh. hyperbole. And I didn't find the tape that I didn't faint on my fainting couch like all of the liberals when he said those things. They were stupid and kind of crass and disgusting. But believe me, I've hung around men for a long time. I know how men speak. It's perfectly within the bounds of the great majority of men. Most men heard that and said, Okay, well I guess I'm not gonna want to go anywhere near the great majority of men as I'm out there looking. But um go ahead. Well I'm not I'm not telling you anything that you don't already know. I mean Okay, well, let, and let me talk about the. Call me naive. Let me talk about. How about that? You're naive. Let me talk about the uh, racial attacks. The you know the 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 racist attacks that we're hearing about since the election. That is what is known in the business as selection bias. Now there are a bunch of people in the United States who are racist. That right. is certainly true. Right. Many fewer than there used to be. And yeah. they go around and they do racist things every day. They and and, and they are they are way. emboldened. They are emboldened by a Trump yeah. win. But no, they're you, not. You and, actually, no, this, no, is, they're, this they're, is another place. Ed, they're being is, reported in the national media now because that's the media narrative. The well, but there is, there the is also guy. an emboldening, I think, as well. There is. I mean, yeah. if, you're, if it, your guy wins. If your guy wins, then I think you're going to feel emboldened, too. That's just kind of natural, right? It's selection bias. Okay. But, you know, know, again, this is a a situation, Ed. This is a situation. You and I I agree here. We can do kumbaya here because with respect to Ankar's thesis, I'm also questioning how predominant the phenomenon is. I, I agree that it exists, and I agree that it's worrisome, but as I said, I don't know how predominant it is and therefore how ominous everything is. And then the other well, I mean, thing, like so I said, I don't, I don't, I don't know so how things. unprecedented it is. I, I disagree with how there, unprecedented, you know, I think, I think that Obama, there, Obama's, you know, presidency, the way that people treated Obama was of concern, the authoritarianism behind it, you know, he's going to engage in this fundamental transformation of America. That 
to me, you know, struck some of these notes from the left, right? There was, there were so many things wrong with that particular paragraph. First of all, who did these polls? Are they the same pollsters who said Clinton was going to win? That's one. Right. There's number, that, right? Number two, the selection bias on the racist stuff, obviously, since everybody wants to think Trump's a racist, there's no evidence for that, by the way, but everybody wants to think you're racist. Every single element of racial animosity, of which there's like a lot in the United States, not, not as much as it was before, is now going to be national news on NBC every night. Whereas right. a year ago, it wasn't going to be. So it's all selection bias. I mean, if you think that, oh, my God, uh, you know, no one has ever said the N-word okay, so, so you're, Trump so you're saying you're saying the phenomenon is a lot less significant. So what would you say? Because I'm going to have to let you go because I, I do want to go on to the yeah. piece about freedom of expression pretty quick here. I want to I give it some, some time. Um, what would you say that we can say at this time about the Trump candidacy and presidency that isn't premature evaluation? I think what we can say is that there are some potentially promising elements combined. And what about, with, what about, what about worrisome elements? Are, are, can we also say fairly at this point that there are some potentially worrisome elements? Well, yeah, I mean, of course there's always worrisome element, elements on anybody elected president and certainly Trump's not, <laughs> uh, certainly Trump's one of them, but right. I, I don't think, um, I, you know, if, if you're going to talk about the libel laws, uh, um, I just want, uh, you know, as far as Trump, Trump being a public figure and, and having been maligned so much and running up against the New York Times versus Sullivan. Um, no, I'm going to I'm going to talk Sullivan. I'm going to talk about the Hamilton stuff. That's what I'm going to talk oh, about. The Hamilton, Hamilton stuff. stuff. That, that was yeah, that was stupid. I mean, the Hamilton yeah. people were stupid, and, and I, he was I would stupid, say we're stupid. But so you'll have to tune. Yeah, you'll yeah. Ha- you'll All have right. to hang on and, and hear why why I'm, I'm disturbed on. by it. Yeah. But I, I think I, I, what that article really requires is, is, a, is a dissection, which I do not have time to do, because I think that it is substantially context dropping in a, on a massive scale. OK, so that's my OK. Bottom line. My, my, my guess is that you you have you have the same empirical concerns that I have. But then in addition, you don't agree with the authoritarianism that was inherent in the Trump campaign and its appeal to those people who are actually enthusiastic about him. You don't think it's necessarily about that, right? No, not at all. Not at all. Okay. Okay. Well, I think I got it. And I thank you for calling and doing the, the little debate with me. And I'm sure we'll keep doing it over the next four years of Trump, maybe. Who knows, right? Oh, God. <laughs> oh, God help us all. Thanks, Ed. We'll talk soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Um, okay, so I do want to go back to the blog at don'tletitgo.com just as soon as my awesome Safari browser decides that I am worthy. Let me let me quit and start over again. I, I want to go over there because one of the things that you might be able to say about a Trump presidency and what it's going to mean for us is not necessarily, you know, I've got the links about people speculating about the makeup of the cabinet, and I tend to agree that the selection of Bannon, for example, is a bit disturbing. And I talked about a little why, you know, why earlier I read a piece at New York Times that talked about some of the things that he said in quotations. And this idea of referring to, I guess, feminist women at certain educational institutions as dykes from so-and-so, 
it's disturbing to me that you're going to put in a position of substantial authority and power someone who's going to advise Trump. It's going to be this person. Uh, a lot of people are out there. Um, a lot of people are out there, uh, you know, also circulating articles from Breitbart that have been published under the leadership of Bannon. Some of these alt-right pieces that are deliberately provocative, you know, women should be barefoot and pregnant and stay home. Women would be a lot happier if we didn't have washing machines. This is something that Milo, my uh, ex-boyfriend gay, whatever I used to call him, that he published under Bannon's leadership. This is all disturbing stuff. But let's not even look at that. Let's just look at this one episode that happened this past weekend where Mike Pence and his family went to go see the musical Hamilton. And I actually did watch the video. Okay. Can you guys hear me now? Apparently, I've been disconnected for the last five minutes. So what was the last thing that I said? What is the last thing that I said, everyone? Can you hear me? Yeah, I'm here. So what was the last thing that I said before they disconnected me so rudely? Everyone's saying welcome back. I'm so sorry, everyone. Yeah. I've, I've got to have somebody apparently watching the connection itself. I'm going to need, and this is the other thing too. Everyone says, why not have the video like your own? I think he's got somebody there doing the video for him because you can see how they're alternating between the close-up and the, you know, more kind of, uh, I don't know, uh, wide lens shots or whatever of him. He's got somebody there. If I had somebody here, somebody could film me, and then they also could watch this connection. So the Milo comment, okay, just the Milo comment. The last thing I said was I was going to buy all of you guys another round. Yeah. So Milo. So I did not even get to um, this whole thing about the free speech. Is that right? Oh, the camera's automated in your own show. Okay, well, that's good. Video? You mean, so I was talking about the video and when, so did I, did I even get to introducing this Hamilton exam, this issue of of Something about an ex-boyfriend. Oh, about Milo being my ex-boyfriend. So maybe that's it. As soon as I got cut off from that. Um, So referring to the Pence video. Hmm. Okay. Well, what I wanted to emphasize, and I've only got 17 minutes or so to do it, is this whole Hamilton episode, right? And again, what happened, Pence goes to see Hamilton, the musical, at... um, you know, in Broadway. And a couple of things happen. First of all, he gets booed, right? He gets booed. He and his family get booed as they come in. And this is just an example of Americans treating politicians like fellow citizens that they feel that they can criticize, they can, you know, boo or cheer or do whatever about. They don't feel so cowed and so in awe that they have to remain silent when this person comes in the theater to watch a play with them. So that's a good thing, right? Um, And then what happened at the end of the play? At the end of the play, the actor, Dixon, gets up and delivers a speech to Pence 
that it's, you know, on behalf of the cast and, you know, Pence is about to walk out and he says, I see you're about to walk out, but could you just stay here and listen for a minute? And it's not very long. It's like a minute, maybe two minutes at the most. And he appeals to Pence to protect the rights of all Americans is the way he put it. And people who listen to my show know that someone like Dixon, who's very liberal, is probably appealing not just for, you know, for example, the government not to discriminate against homosexuals and women and people of different races and things like that. That would be wrong for government to ever do this. And I believe, you know, again, I agree with gay marriage myself. It's a little controversial sometimes even among objectivists. But I would not like to see Oberfell, you know, overturned. So, you know, there's that element. But someone like Dixon is also probably concerned that the Christian bakers should still be forced to bake the gay wedding cake, for example. They agree that anti-discrimination laws, you know, the Dixons of the world, Brandon Dixons of the world, agree that anti-discrimination laws should be upheld and continued. Of course, so did Gary Johnson, for that matter. But, um, you know, someone like a Mike Pence, potentially means the end of those sorts of anti-discrimination laws. And I would agree with that. Dixon's in favor. Anyway, point being, I saw Dixon deliver this plea to Mike Pence respectfully. And I disagree with Trump's characterization of what went on. So, you know, again, let me go back to, um, you know, the, the article, the USA Today article, and they have the quotes from Trump. Trump says that the Hamilton cast was rude. And at the end of that second tweet, he demands an apology from the Hamilton cast to Pence. Right. Let me get down. and I'm going to scroll again. While I was disconnected, I had read the two tweets. So the one, the first one was, our wonderful future VP Mike Pence was harassed last night at the theater by the cast of Hamilton, cameras blazing. This should not happen. So that was the first one. Second, the theater must always be a safe space and special place. The cast of Hamilton was very rude last night to a very good man, Mike Pence. Apologize, exclamation point, as a separate sentence, he writes. That is, I believe, a disturbing thing. You have someone who is the president-elect demanding of the cast of Hamilton that they apologize. And so I would say that an episode like this does you know, serve as a warning sign about what we can expect under a Trump presidency. And you know, those of you, I know there's a lot of people who listen to this show who are optimistic about Trump. There And I was very glad to see Hillary lose, too. Okay, if, you know, if anything, I, I didn't really have a, a horse in the game, so to speak, but I was slightly relieved, at least, and, you know, to have Trump win. I have to examine why and whether it's a, a healthy reason, right, or whether I've got a little bit of this, you know, believe him because he's pro-American thing behind it. Because I do disagree with, you know, so much of what he says, and I know he's unprincipled and his epistemology is all messed up and everything else. Nonetheless, I did not want to see Hillary win. She's, you know, a certifiable bad person. Um, let me just, I want to just say one more thing because it's a, I don't want it to be a taxi cab thought. Uh, the, the other thing that disturbs you about Trump in his past is using bankruptcy as a deliberate business strategy, not just 
well, sometimes he had to resort to bankruptcy. And, you know, you could say, you know, in today's world where the government is really damaging you, that sometimes using the bankruptcy law that is there isn't necessarily horribly bad, but he would use it repeatedly as a deliberate business strategy. And to me, that was disturbing. Um, but let's, you know, that's just one thing. Let's go back. Um, you know, even if you're, you know, pro-Trump, at least identify, or at least agree, I would say, that his demand for an apology coming from someone who's going to wield presidential power is quite disturbing. And in order to get you to think about that, I want to shift you to a different concrete example. Sometimes you find if you shift people to a different concrete example, then the acceptance of your argument will happen uh, a little more effectively. And I was reminded this morning as I was engaging with this Facebook friend of mine about a post that I'd written back in 2011 called Attack Watch as Case Study of How Force Stops Thinking. If you remember, there had been this website set up by Obama for America. And what they did is they said, okay, you know, we're going to have this watchdog. There's a website. And I guess what you were supposed to do is you were supposed to post to that website. You're supposed to report to that website people who were saying wrong things, unfair things about Barack Obama. And if you recall, there was a huge backlash against this. It was wonderful, as I was writing here in the blog post, to see people exhibiting the American sense of life, right? Um, what did people do? They kept tweeting out critical tweets about Obama, you know, on principle. Like, you wouldn't even go out of your way to do this stuff, but because this attack watch thing existed, you felt like you had to in order to defy this, because this is a very small example of a threat against citizens. Now, is there a direct threat? No, it's very attenuated. It's very indirect. But the idea is you are being watched if you are criticizing Barack Obama. You should feel bad. You're going to be made to feel bad if you are criticizing Barack Obama. And is that not exactly the same thing that Trump is doing by demanding that the cast of Hamilton apologize? Um, now, what did I do? You know, I said I, I'm enjoying, you know, I'm, I'm joining in on some of these. You know, I don't want to, uh, and I said that it's fun and cathartic to go ahead and heckle Obama in these tweets and, you know, defy attack watch, so to speak. Uh, I was a little torn about doing it because of the resources that would be devoted to attack watch, you know, government resources, et cetera. But the reason that it's important to think about this is because this, sort of website attack watch or Trump's little demand for an apology from the Hamilton cast. Both of these can be seen as an example, as, you know, a, a way that we can apply a principle that Ayn Rand observed. And she observed that force stops thinking. And in the blog post, I quoted from chapter eight of Leonard Peikoff's book, Objectivism and the Philosophy of Ayn Rand. And here's the quote from Leonard, quote, if and to the extent that someone's gun becomes a man's epistemological court of final appeal, replacing the law of identity, A is A, then man cannot think. What does that mean? That means if and to the extent that you think that 
what you say is maybe going to result in a government initiation of force against you, to that extent, you can't think. Now, you might say, okay, well, Trump's not really going to do anything. Um, You know, it was just a demand for an apology. He just said that they're rude. It's no big deal. This man is going to wield presidential power. And let me just give you one small example. And unfortunately, the source of the example came from Tammy Bruce, um, whom I love. Uh, Let me find the link. Again, the link is over at don'tletitgo.com, the link to all of these stories that I've talked about today. The headline, and it's from Shifra. I love Shifra. Hamilton may may get kicked by karma. Congress set to vote on tax breaks for Broadway. So think about this. Um, Tammy's noting that Congress, the vote that Congress makes about whether Broadway is going to get a tax break could depend on the speech that Dixon made that was critical of Pence. Threatening. Now, it doesn't mean that you're going to be jailed. You know, I've got the link to Rachel Maddow freaking out and saying, you know, all of Trump's opponents are going to, uh, you know, be rounded up and thrown in jail and all this kind of stuff. That's hyperbole, obviously. But stuff like this is obviously not hyperbole. We've got, you know, people on our side even observing it, saying, you know, Congress is set to vote on tax breaks. And so maybe they're going to get kicked by karma because it's bad for you to criticize Pence. This, to me, this sort of attitude, you know, first of all, it is a little bit of actual censorship. It is a little bit of initiation of force. You know, the amount of taxes that you're going to be charged could depend on what you have said that is critical of your political leaders. That's scary stuff, right? Um, And so to the extent that Trump is behind some of this and his demand for an apology is an indirect, semi-veiled, who knows, threat about this, that's scary. So let me go see if I can find the pertinent paragraph of my blog post. I say some might argue that attack watch doesn't threaten the use of force of any kind, nor the imposition of any penalties. So this is in fact not an example that would come under the principle of, you know, force. I said, but if you think about it, the only reason that people even care about the existence of attack watch, the only reason they feel like they must rebel against it is because they know that even if there has not yet been a threat of penalties, such penalties might not be far behind. This is why phrases like enemies list and political prisoner keep appearing in discussions of attack watch. Said if you feel the slightest bit intimidated by the creation of attack watch, even if you tell yourself you will not be affected by it, that you will continue on as before, then you have experienced a small taste of what Ayn Rand meant. And then I put in paren, as have, for example, businessmen who were called to Washington and, quote, urged to run their businesses in a way more pleasing to Obama, even though there was not at any point any legislation compelling them to do so. So what I'm saying is, you know, when you think about something like this, when you see Trump tweeting out to the Hamilton cast a demand to apologize, do you feel just the slightest bit, you know, me, right? I was like, yeah, I'm here on this show. I'm going to criticize Trump for the next four years. 
do I have an IRS audit coming to me because I do that? Apparently there have been people who, you know, have appeared on Fox News before and they've had IRS audits afterwards. This happens. This is the political power that's going to be in Trump's hands. And Trump, when he's out there tweeting, demanding an apology for someone who delivers a respectful speech to Pence, that's, that is scary. That is scary. I think that is an ominous sign. And freedom of expression is one of the things that I was concerned about with the Trump administration. So what can you say that isn't premature evaluation? We can already see in Trump's actual conduct that he is not sympathetic to respectful expressions of disagreement by a cast of Hamilton when, you know, Pence is going there. And the demand for apology in particular, I find disturbing and I find it akin to attack watch. You can go to the blog at don'tletitgo.com and argue with me and say, okay, there are some disanalogies here. Uh, Why is it that Trump's demand for apology is somehow different? His public demand for an apology is different. I mean, attack watch, I mean, all they were doing was they were just, you know, going to list these people who were saying these unfair untrue supposedly things about Barack Obama. It's the same thing, putting this pressure on them when it comes from uh, a source that has the color of governmental authority, which means the, uh, you know, the ability to use government force against a person. It's, it's scary. Um, And as I said, you know, here was on Tammy Bruce's website saying They're going to get kicked by karma because they're not going to get the tax breaks. More of their money is going to be stolen from them. What is a tax break? A tax break is just the permission to pay less in taxes, to have less of your money stolen from you. The idea that your tax breaks or your audit status depends on what you say in a free country is a horrible thing. And, you know, I think the fact that people at Tammy Bruce's website are identifying that this might be a logical consequence shows that I'm not far off in analogizing this to the attack watch phenomenon that we were all worried about. Other things to think about at the blog, the New York Times is criticizing the manner in which Trump is selecting and meeting with the the cabinet aspirants. Um, some of that, maybe it is showing that there's an authoritarian element to it. You know, it's, it's a spectacle as they say, but maybe not. You can also examine the cabinet picks. I don't know necessarily that the cabinet picks mean that you can say very much in advance objectively. We have six Senate Republicans who could make life very difficult for Trump. That shows maybe under a Trump presidency that we might be okay because the checks and balances are there. The future, the future of supersonic flight depends on Trump. That's a little bit scary, but we have Branson, who's behind supersonic flight, who's behind Virgin and Boom, uh, that they're willing as entrepreneurs to stand up to Trump. So that's a more optimistic sign. You know, again, it's not what about, it's not so much what the politicians do. It's also what we, the people and entrepreneurs in particular, decide that they're going to do in resistance. And that's a good sign by Branson. And then finally, do watch the bubble, the SNL clip That just shows you that SNL is up and running and is going to deliver criticism from both sides, from the left and the right. And it's just a fun little clip. I think you'll enjoy it. So thanks, everyone. I'm out of time. I will talk to you the same time on Wednesday. That's 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 p.m. Pacific. 
In the meantime, I'll hear from you at the blog, don'tletitgo.com. Take care, everyone. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.